Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Blue Jays Nation Radio with Cam Lewis and Tyler Uremchuk, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Welcome into episode 52 of Blue Jays Nation Radio, the first of our off-season series. I don't know. We probably could have came up with a clever name for this, Coombsy. Uh, do you want to try and come up with something on the spot right now? Absolutely I... not. Cam's <laughs> <laughs> uh, here as always, and we also have a special guest, BK, joining us again. How's it going, man? We are here to eulogize the Blue Jays. So happy to be with you. Sad we're doing it this early in October. Yeah, that's fair. Um, this is also like, it's a Blue Jays podcast. I'm in Edmonton. Cam is in beautiful Canmore, Alberta, I believe. I'm in Canmore, yeah. I, I flew back to Edmonton today um, from Toronto to Edmonton and then immediately drove to Canmore. And, and I'm, I'm running on fumes and I'm running on, I'm, I got a few beverages in the mix as a disclaimer. So if I don't make any sense, it's not my fault. To be fair, we didn't make a ton of sense coming down the stretch either. So you can, um, you can, the the both of you can attest this. You've both been in the mountains before. We're we're all Western guys. When you're in the altitude up here, the drinks hit harder. Yeah. (laughs) Those are the rules. That's how it is. It's not my fault. And BK, you're in LA. That's right. Sunshine. It's hot. It's beautiful. And uh, you were at the, okay, granted again, this is Thursday night. We're recording this. So last night, you were at the NL wildcard game. Tell us a little bit about how electric Dodger stadium was. So I took a solo trip there uh, just based on the fact that there was a playoff baseball game nearby. I have never seen a playoff baseball game and thought I'd just scoop up a, a ticket last minute. So uh, yeah, made it work. And what a phenomenal experience that was. Uh, that ballpark is awesome. Just yes. gorgeous ballpark to begin with. And then you throw in the atmosphere that comes with the playoff game and then add in the way it ended a walk-off home run and just a super tense game the entire way through. Um, I think it was one, one in the fifth and it stayed that way to the ninth. And, and uh, yeah, so a heck of a ball game. Uh, also just being there made me wish I was feeling that angst, that baseball <laughs> angst for the blue Jays. Um, I miss it. I, I miss it with the Jays, but yeah, it was fun to experience something like that. Yeah, it looked absolutely unreal. Like, I can't even imagine what the roar of the crowd would have been like. Like, this, was it like the second that ball hit Taylor's back? Because, I mean, when you go to, like, any other ball game, the crowd reacts to every single fly ball. Yeah. Like, it has a chance of going out, right? So, I would imagine it was just bananas the second he hit that. Yeah, he hits it. And then I think everyone's eyes go to Tyler O'Neill in left field to see what his reaction is. Because it was a bit of a line drive home run. Like, it didn't mm-hmm. get way up in the air. 
So it's hard to feel with like how, how good of a barrel it was and how far it was going to go. Um, but the moment I like, I, I look left, I see O'Neill pretty much in his like, you know, okay, I'm going to kind of move left, but I know it's over. And then, yeah, place went nuts. Um, but even off the bat, like e- even if it had been a double that wins the game too. Right. So yeah. it just, it, yeah, it, it felt like a big moment right away. I'll quickly add Albert Pujols hit a screaming line drive to center. It was a, it was, I think it was a saw it was 107 miles per hour off the bat. So if he gets under that a touch more, Albert Pujols walks off the St. Louis would have been so which good. would have been incredible. Um, and he came close to doing it, right? Like I, yeah. he, he crushed that ball. I uh, just didn't get under it enough. But yeah, later in the inning, Chris Taylor with the walk off. And that, that was an experience I will remember. I was, uh, I was, I maybe we should actually, I was going to save the, uh, the rest of sort of the MLB playoff talk for later on in the podcast. So we will do that and we will jump into three up three and three up three down presented to you by twig and berries, where you can use the promo code nation 15 and get yourself 15% off. Whether you are out on the coast, like BK or in the six, like Coombsy, if your order is more than $75, twig and berries will ship it to you. How's that for a fucking ad read? Hey, um, all right. Instead of three up, three down, we're going to do nine up, nine down because, again, it's our off-season episode. Like you said, BK, we are eulogizing the Toronto Blue Jays today. Um, I'm going to leave this up to you two, though. Should we start with the ups or do we start with the downs? You want to do – maybe we should do kind of like a back and forth because we don't want to get – we don't want to get – we don't want to have nine bleak things in a row, right? Okay. So we've all got, we've all got three ups and three downs. We've decided. We, we, mm-hmm. we have a little group chat on Twitter. And yep. we came up with three good things and three bad things each. So we, we each have our own things. Let's just, we'll, we'll say a good thing and then a bad thing, right? Sure. Sounds good. Uh, Coomzy, I'll let you go first then. And I will lead you into your first up. When we did our hot takes, your grand hot take, we didn't think it would happen. You said Vladimir Guerrero Jr. would have an OPS of a thousand or better. And boy, did he ever. He did. He, he had an OPS at the end of the season of 1,002. So 1.002, so just slightly above my projection, which is fantastic because it always feels nice to be right. And I think the thing with Vladdy that we all kind of saw coming was it was last year after they lost to the Rays. They went to the playoffs in that dinky little three-game series and they got torched. You know, the first game was close, second game sucked. And when they panned to Vladdy on the broadcast, you could see him just sitting in the dugout looking fucking devastated. Like this kid, if we're being completely honest, probably hasn't dealt with that much adversity, especially baseball wise, mm-hmm. because he's so damn good. So the entire time in his life growing up, he just, you know, dominated, was stupidly good, came up through the minor leagues, impossibly good again. And then his first two seasons at the big league level just were not what you'd expect them to be. And I mean, we all had to be cognizant of the fact that he was 20 and 21 at that time, but there was also players, Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis, Ronald Acuna, who were, you know, putting up amazing numbers at the, at that age. And then you saw Vladdy after the Tampa series look just devastated, look just sad. And then he went into the off season and got into impossibly good shape. And then as soon as we saw those videos of him on like Instagram and stuff like that, in like January, February, and then come into spring training, yeah. just looking jacked and svelte, slender, athletic. We just knew he was going to go absolutely nuclear this year. And I think even beyond like the expectations that we had in spring training, he was just, he went, he went like beyond that. Like, I mean, there were very few instances this year where he had a prolonged cold streak. He had a, 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 a like a section of games that were terrible 
it, it almost never happened. It was, you know, he played 161 games tied for the major league lead, 48 home runs. And I mean, he's fucking 22 years old. Like the, the fact that he put together this season at that age is so nuts. And just to think about like what's going to come in like the coming years. Cause you look at the best seasons in blue Jays history and you think like, you know, Carlos Delgado put up like an 1100 LPS, but he did that when he was 28. Yeah. So what's Vladdy going to do when he's 28, 25, that kind of thing. It's, it's crazy to think about. And it's, it, it's nice. This finally came around because I know there was some skepticism based on the first two years that maybe he wasn't going to be as good as we thought he was. I remember, I think it was the two of us talking we thought, okay, well, like maybe Vladdy can be like prime Edwin Encarnacion. That's fine. Yeah. And here we are now. We were talking about him. Yeah. We were like, Hey, you know, hopefully he can be that middle of the order power bat. Right. And I mean, it's crazy to think how the perception of him has changed in 12 short months here. And the other thing too, before I get to you, BK, like we, we now know how dominant his bat can be. And that was great. But also the move to first base went so much better than I think anyone could have expected. And that's not to say he was perfect over there. He made his errors. He made his mistakes. But when you compare him at first base this year versus in previous times when like he didn't know when to go for a ball versus when to go back to his bag. Mm -hmm. And some of those early mistakes he made there, like the strides he made at first base as well coming. I mean, this whole year were incredible. BK, your thoughts on Vladdy's breakout season. Yeah. Well, even last year defensively, like you're talking about how many balls in foul territory did he overrun last year where he yeah. like kind of goes after it and then he can't drift back on it. it, it he was not really competent to be on a baseball field last year. He was a DH who didn't hit like a DH. Um, so there, yeah, there was reason to wonder what that meant for Vladdy's future. And then he killed it. And, uh, had mentioned the, uh, the cold streak, the one cold streak he had this season. I think one of the most encouraging things we saw was him come out of that and come out of it on fire too. Cause I was a little worried that, uh, that the long season had got to him. I was a little worried, maybe, you know, just put on a bit of weight during the season, or maybe he was, you know, a little out of shape or maybe just tired, right. Yeah. From all, everything he did the off season, long spring training, playing every day. Um, and then he came out of that. So we've, we've seen him be able to weather the storm of a cold streak during a monster season and return to being strong again. And there's ebbs and flows to a baseball season, but I think now we can reliably look at Vladdy as an elite hitter. Um, who can sustain an entire season. As long as he's working hard in the off season, he's got that. So, and once you taste this experience, once you taste being a rock star at the MLB level, uh, he's going to want to retain that. I mean, or maintain that. So yeah, it's all very encouraging. And, and this is kind of what we expected three years ago, which might not have been fair, but the bat has now shown us a full season's worth of what kind of our hopes were looking at this elite prospect who was, you know, a generational hitter. Coombsy, we're going to go to uh, your first down here, and it's centered around a guy who was, I mean, you could argue he was their most important player in that shortened regular season a couple years ago, but he did not live up to the hype this year. Uh, your first down. No, this was undoubtedly the, probably the biggest disappointment of 2021, given what he did in 2022 is Hyunjin Ryu, who I think undoubtedly was in the short season last year, their MVP. I mean, let's go back and look at, the pitching rotation they had, especially pre Taiwan Walker trade last year. And it'd be like Ryu every fifth day. And then what? Like Tanner Rourke, Chase Anderson. Uh, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know who was pitching innings for the team last year anymore. Like it's, it's, I'm just spaced on that. And it was just every fifth day Ryu came out and it was like six, seven innings, one, two earned runs. It was amazing. And then this year he goes and it's 31 starts, 
3.7 ERA. I mean, his peripherals were a little bit better, but what we saw was kind of what we were worried about possibly seeing in like year three, four of the contract. We saw the velocity dip. We saw his change up, his curveball. They weren't quite as effective. He isn't painting corners anymore. And we got to a situation late in the year where I, I mean, even coming into that final game of the season against Baltimore, right? He had just spent, you know, 10 days on the injured list to get a bit of a break with what I think we all believe was a shadow injury. It wasn't actually real. And we all had anxiety with him coming into that game. And that is not something we felt at all last year. And now it's kind of worrying. What are we going to get in year three and year four of this contract? Are we going to get just a back end starter? Are they going to have to figure out, you know, how to have this guy pitch on extra days rest? Like what's going to go on here? And it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, we got the one amazing season. That was great. And things seem to have gone off a cliff very quickly. BK, I'll get to you for your first up now because it ties in nicely with the talk of Ryu kind of sliding the way he did. Um, Robbie Ray literally made $8 million this year, but he made himself a hell of a lot more than $8 million. And that was your first up. Robbie Ray was the first free agent to sign in all of baseball. <laughs> and I was fine with it. To me, it was like a shoulder shrug move. I'm like, okay, like there's upside there. Uh, fans were not happy about that. It's like, okay, the cheap Rogers are going to have one of those off seasons again. <laughs> so it's just funny to go back and look at the takes that existed when that signing was made. Um, and not to say I saw it as some great signing. I was just, like I said, I was fine with it. Um, but one year, $8 million. And I can't imagine it doesn't result in the Cy Young award. We'll see that here soon, but regardless, they got a monster season out of a one-year pillow contract for a pitcher they got to know for a month last year. Um, and, and what a, like he became a cult hero. He had the, he had his shtick, which was the tight pants and he just went out and dominated um, including like teams that always get to the Jays, right? Like Tampa Bay until that final Tampa Bay start, Robbie Ray was dominant against them all season long. Uh, just a monster. And to come into the AL East pitching at three different home ballparks, uh, a, a major league park, which is known as a hitter's park, but then two minor league parks where the ball just flies. And to th- put up a 2.84 ERA and to have a walks per nine of 2.47. Robbie Ray, that's above <laughs> league average. His, his uh, 2017 season, he was a Cy Young contender. He had a 2.89 ERA. He walked 3.94. That's like the best of previous Robbie Ray was still a walk machine where he walks amongst the most hitters in baseball. And here he is. And he just decides I'm not going to walk guys anymore. I don't know how that happened, but he did talk about the strength and conditioning stuff he did in the off season. He said those pants were the same size he wore in past years. He just filled out his legs. So I don't know if just hitting the gym allowed it and his core. And he just had the stability to take into each and every start. And I don't Maybe that helped him with his control. I don't know. But a monster season from, you know, uh, the type of contract that Tanner Roark exceeds, right? Tanner Roark's <laughs> out there getting 224 a couple of years ago. Robbie Ray, not even close to that. A third of that. Uh, yeah, just what, what a joy to watch Robbie Ray this year. And uh, yeah, I mean, the only downside is too bad they didn't lock him up for multiple years. Um, but yeah, hard to expect or uh, get more out of a pillow contract. Can you imagine if they would have given him multiple years? Like if it would have been like two years at like 9 million a season and they would have had him for one more year at that price tag right now, that would have been absolutely killer. 
I've time machined in my head so many times. Be like, just go back and tell Ross, like, send me it, right? Give them whatever they want, like whatever they want. It will not be too much. I promise you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just the way the way baseball works, right? So a couple of guys who who saw an opportunity to uh, build on their value, and they did it. And it's really cool to see a pitcher decide to do that in the AL East. Uh, so that's another element of Robbie Ray signing with the Jays and choosing to go with the Jays. That was really cool. Uh, a pillow contract. And he's a pitcher who's like, yeah, I'm going to pillow contract myself in the AL East. That's absurd. But what a, what a tremendous way that worked out. And with both Semyon and Ray, I mean, let, even if they were to walk down the path of not coming back and they lose both of them in free agency to get that reputation as a team, we're like, Hey, if you come here on a one-year deal, you can either hit in a glorious lineup and have protection all around you and have guys to drive in and set yourself up for a career year. Or if you're a pitcher, you can come work with Pete Walker. I like to have that reputation as an organization, I think is massive as well. Yeah. And I, that's one of the ups we'll get to later in this, but yeah, uh, yeah. Marcus Semyon called, called base Toronto a baseball paradise, which sure. I, I we haven't yeah. heard much of that in the past. Right? So awesome. yeah, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things going on. And uh, yeah, anytime you're, you're convincing, guys send me a two he, he switched positions to take the pillow contract with the jays like these guys saw something here wanted to come here um and and resulted in tremendous seasons and uh yeah robbie ray robbie ray this season will be remembered for a long time and it should result in a cy young award and what do you got for your first down what do you have to remind me um, early bullpen. 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 <laughs> oh yeah let's talk bullpen uh so <laughs> this goes back to even in the off season when you see yates sign and then his elbow blows up early march uh you see chatwood start the season well and then completely fall off a cliff david phelps another free agent signing and he was pretty solid early i think we forget he exists like the, the baseball season yeah. is so long there are components or guys who play in a year and you just forget it happens. David Phelps was really good. And then he was done for the year. So you got three free agent signings with the bullpen that completely flamed out one way or another. And then you got to the list of names like TJ Zoik and Rafael Delis and, and the may Tim Meza, like Tim Meza who ended up being like the guy you trusted at the end of the year was probably a DFA contender at one point earlier this season. Um, you got Joel Piamps pitching in high leverage, Trent Thornton pitching in high leverage. It was ugly and ultimately probably the biggest contributor to the Jays not making the playoffs. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the big down to early season bullpen. If you take the worst stretch, which, you know, it was probably like May through June. So you take those two months, um, man, you got like Patrick Murphy pitching to an 8-4 ERA. Jeremy Beasley, 7-7-1. Anthony Castro, 7-5-9. Dolly, 7-4-5. Uh, Carl Edwards, Carl Edwards Jr., 6-7-5. These are names. Tyler Chatwood, 6-4-3. Tim Meza, 6-3-8. Uh, Trent Thornton, 4-8-8, which actually sounds exceptional. Um, <laughs> lots, of rough, <laughs> lots of rough performances there. My goodness. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was so painful to watch. Um yeah, if you guys just remember watching each of those games and you just, they, they all follow the same script. The Jays play well early, get a lead of some sort, or at least are tied. And then you just watch the game slip through your fingers. You're just watching the TV. Like there's nothing we can do about this. Every game follows the same script. This team's in every game. They have to pitch their leverage arms every game because they were never getting blown out. They were so good innings one through six. The blue Jays probably have like, 120 and 42 record this season, right? Like just insane early game results. And then way too many of them just faded away. 
hearing names like Chatwood and Dolise and Rourke makes me very depressed because you think back to, yeah, like how many they just blew early. And it's like, fuck man, baseball is a long season. I get it. But those wins, when, when you drop, you know, two out of the three in the first month and a half of the season consistently, or, or because the bullpen blew it, you sit there and go, ah, season's long, season's long. And you sit there at the end of the year and you go, well, shit, one or two of those would have been pretty nice. Um, so I will wheel this right back into the positives with my first up. And that is the contract given to Marcus Semien. I remember Coombsy, we did like a kind of, it was like an off the cuff little joke we had about like, you know, this guy was an MVP candidate in 2019. Like, can you imagine if he even gets to even close to that level? And we both kind of laughed off the idea of that even happening. And it was pretty much just us being fanboys, being like, ah, that'd be pretty cool if it happened. Um, no matter which war website you use, he's at least top 10 in all of majors. And on baseball reference, he is top five in war for this season, not just position players, not just the American league in all of baseball. He's top five and wins above replacement. I don't think any Jays fan would have believed you at the beginning of the year. If you would have told them that, I mean, if you would have said Marcus Semien was top five on the blue Jays in war, even that might've been met with like a, are you sure? Like, come on, Bichette and Hernandez and Guerrero, like other guys, top five on the Jays would have been great. Top five in all of baseball. It, it was just insane. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about the bad throw against Detroit in a bit. And like, that sucks. But this guy also like directly won them two games, the walk-off against Boston, the walk-off against Oakland as well. Like, he was just a machine. He played all 162 games. He played whatever position you wanted him to. I remember that being a story when he first signed. It was just like, honestly, literally a perfect season, in my opinion, from Marcus Semien, right, Coom? Yeah, no, 100%. Like, and also the other thing that with Marcus Semien that's it's so important is the amount, the extent to which players have raved about what playing with him was like. Like you think about your guy like Bo Bichette, you're, you know, 23 years old and you get to play with that guy and you get to watch him, you know, show up every single day and prepare and see what goes into being a player that's that good. Because Marcus Semien's interesting because he was another one kind of like Bo and Blatt, like a real hot shot, good prospect who came up and he was more known for his bat. He wasn't great defensively. I mean, you could even argue, I mean, you could ask White Sox and Athletics fans and they'd probably tell you he was a fucking mess defensively. And he really figured it out to an extent where I don't think any of us would say he was remotely close to bad defensively this year. So having that kind of presence on your team was such a positive influence. And I mean, it would be a damn shame if he did wind up moving on this off season. I don't think it would be particularly shocking because I think a lot of us expect he's going to go back out West, but his you know, his one year influence on the young guys on this team, especially Bobichet, I think is huge. Like even beyond the seven wins he put up this season, it's like that presence is massive for a young team. Yeah, it's huge. Um, and my down is indeed that Marcus Semyon booted grounder. I mean, you said it on the last episode, Coomzy, but you'll drive yourself nuts. If you go back through the schedule and count out every game that they like should have There's won. A lot like, of them. Like the Josh Palacios missed fly ball that ends up being an inside the Parker. Like you can go back through so many and Semyon, like even on that play, Semyon's throw, like Vladdy also probably could have picked that and like made the play on it like that. You'll, you'll be up for days on end if you sit there and try to go back through all those games. So it's a down because it falls under the category of games they should have won. But at the end of the day, I mean, 
there was more than just the Semyon moment that really cost them the season. And like I said, he also had a handful of games where he directly won them the ball game. So I should be kind of more slack, but that, that was my first down. I, uh, I tweeted about this the other day and I, the, some people get defensive when you talk about that Semyon booted ball. Cause like you said, he's this superstar player who had this superstar year for the blue Jays and they're not, they don't get anywhere without him. And that's totally true. The reason people talk about it, the reason I talk about it is because there's such a sense of finality when there's two out in the ninth inning, right? Yeah. So two out ninth inning, there's a ground ball. This isn't blaming Semyon. It's just how winnable that game was off the bat, right? So easy ground ball to Semyon. He fields it cleanly. And then yes, he throws it in the dirt, not blaming Semyon, but you just look at that and it's like, he makes that play 999 times out of a thousand, right? <laughs> And of course it had, and if that happened in the third inning, none of us would talk about it, but it's just because the game is done in that moment. There's no, there's nothing that comes after it. Uh, the whole space time continuum thing. Yes. Maybe it alters the future and they don't win as many games as they do. But really I think that game was what he had a couple relievers coming after um, one of whom was Kirby Sneed. Like I, I don't necessarily think there's too much game outcome after that, that would have changed change of course it's possible but yeah it was just the fact that man like that game was locked in that ground ball hit and i actually got up out of the i got up out of the chair and started to walk away from the tv and then i i overhear this like commotion i'm like oh no no what happened right <laughs> how so that that was the part of it and, and you mentioned the the vod part of it too um I, I think with first baseman when it comes to a second baseman making a throw they don't have time to make that full stride pick like they're yeah. kind of because you don't know how hard that throw is going to come right off the bat too, right? So, yes, I'm not, Vlad would probably somewhat lazily took that, though in a way I don't blame him for. Like that's kind of your, your more casual fielding that from the second baseman. And then you don't have enough time to react to the fact that, oh, oh crap, this is a, this is a ball I need to save now. Um, and, yeah, it's just it, it's such an easy play to point to because of all the elements of it. Semyon having, makes a throw, it's an out. Vladdy makes a pick, it's an out. The ball doesn't get far enough away from Vladdy for the guy from second to score. And the next batter gets out. Then the game is still over. Like there's all these things in that one play with two out in the ninth inning of a season where the Jays miss continuing by one game. And it's just the easiest one to point to and say that was so correctable, right? When yeah. Rafael Delis has given up a ball to Alex Verdugo off the green monster. I mean, that was going to happen probably, right? Like that sucked. That game sucked, but like the Jays lost and those happen. Relief pitchers make pitches that the other teams hit this one. The relief pitcher made a pitch that put a ball on the ground to a sure-handed second baseman who throws it to a good scooping first baseman with the runner on second. And it just sucked. It's just an easy one to remember as great as Semyon was really, he should only be remembered in the highest of stature among fans. But that play just stands out because it, it was the difference, ended up being the difference between continuing and not. I think the, the jarring thing about that play specifically is how many of us that day were like, oh, geez, it's really going to suck when the Jays miss by one game. Yeah. <laughs> we all knew. And it, that, that's what's so frustrating about it is there's, like you said, there's 27 different games we can think back to, specifically March, April, or sorry, not fucking April, May, and June where it's like they blew games left, right, and center, and you can go back to any of them. Like, oh, geez, like Carl Edwards Jr. for some reason was pitching. Tanner Rourke was pitching for some reason. They lost. But it's like this one specifically it was literally there. Yeah. And we all knew when it happened what, <laughs> what the big picture outcome was going to be. 
and it's just gross to like just think about it. <laughs> Painful. All right, uh, let's steer this back to the positive <laughs> side of things, Coomzy. Thank you. Uh, oh, that was some... an ugly tangent, hey? Yeah, that was that took <laughs> us to totally some dark places. Entire, that was dark. <laughs> also, um, we're like almost at the 30-minute mark, and we've made it through three of our ups and three of our downs. So, uh, Coomzy, give some love to your boy Pete Walker for an up. Yeah, let's let's rip through. This is a nice and easy one. Pete Walker this year really established himself as like a cult hero here. I think he he had he he had obviously endeared himself to fans over the past, you know year or two just with pitchers doing well especially this year you have like you know a robbie ray somebody like that just killing it and they're talking about oh gee working with pete walker is fantastic they're finding these random relievers and making them pretty good that was especially the case last year when their bullpen was pretty good but what i think really helped pete walker establish himself as like um like a real fan favorite in toronto was that time in tampa when ryan barucki drilled kevin kierfeyer <laughs> And we all knew this was going to happen. It was pretty dumb. I mean, let's be real here. Like, I ranted about this when we did the podcast after the series um, because the Jays ultimately did the exact same thing that we made fun of the Texas Rangers for doing in 2016. They waited until the very end of this when Tampa couldn't, you know, do anything about it to go ahead and get their revenge. And it's an American League thing, so the pitchers are also batting, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so... You know, Pete Walker comes out and everyone's like, oh, Charlie should go and get tossed. Charlie should go and do this. And instead it's Pete Walker coming out and freaking <laughs> out. Oh, that was so funny. Like that was beyond just becoming like an A1 pitching coach in Major League Baseball that is now apparently making pitchers significantly better. He shows emotion and freaks out at the other team. It's funny. It's, it's, it's cool to see because, I mean, I'm not one of those Charlie bashers, but Sometimes it can be kind of lame that he doesn't get fired up and get into shit. Like I remember specifically that one game in Baltimore when, what's his name, Brandon Hyde, Brian Hyde, Orioles manager, who cares, who's screaming at Robbie Ray. And it was like, well, why didn't Charlie get in the mix? But, you know, seeing, seeing Pete Walker get really, really riled up that game was very entertaining. And that's, that's one of my pluses from the year. Forget uh, forget Semyon and Ray. Are we are we a hundred percent sure Pete Walker's like under contract for two or three more seasons here? Like you know, let's wanna, hope so. You don't want to fucking lose that guy. Right? Yeah, even if uh, even if Robbie Ray walks and signs with the Red Sox or the Yankees, or you know, don't one even of those. Fucking that, say that, man. Stop that oh. right now. Hey, it doesn't matter because he's gonna sprinkle some magic dust on Stephen Matz, who's gonna take his qualifying offer, and Stephen Matz is gonna win the Cy Young next year. It doesn't matter. And uh, the the down you got here, and this is a great one too, because I mean, we talk about, you know, things that may have cost them one game, but this team, I think would have gotten real close to a hundred wins if they had a chance to play the whole year at the Rogers Center. So that that's your next down here. Yeah, my next down was the games at Dunedin specifically. I don't have any positive memories from the games played at Dunedin this year. Like, I think the one game that was good in Dunedin was that time they played Anaheim, the Angels, and they won, you know, 17 to 2 or whatever it was because it was pouring rain and the Angels were like, what the fuck is this? We're playing in a stadium <laughs> with like 700 people in Central Florida. I don't want to do this. It's stupid. We want to leave. And then the Jays just kept hitting. And then, like, you know, Josh Palacios went like 9 for 9, and those are all the hits of his career. <laughs> you know, just weird, weird game. And that was the only good one. The rest of them were terrible. And it was just like Yankees fans that are snowbirds living in Florida coming and booing the Jays at their home game. Red Sox fans, snowbirds, this and that. And it was 
Gross. Rays fans. There were yeah, Rays fans Rays in fans. their home ballpark. There's Awful. no Rays fans. There's no such thing as a <laughs> Tampa Bay Computer generated. <laughs> like Tampa Bay Rays fans don't exist. They're talking about moving the team half of the year to Montreal. Like what the fuck is that? Like you don't have fans. It's stupid. <laughs> Can, so, can I throw was, one more good Dunedin memory in there? And it's when Vladdy hit a ball into the schoolyard. Like that's shit that happens in my rec league training. Was, no, that was definitely was in the it? regular season. hundred percent. It was man. I don't know why I don't remember that, but I remember Mike Trout's schoolyard ball, but I thought, yeah, I think both those did happen regular season. I think you might yeah. be right. I'll have to look that up, but I just, I'm Mike Trout's for whatever sticks out in my head. But the problem uh, is, yeah, is that first ballpark. The problem is that this season feels like it was like three seasons. Yeah. Like thinking back to things that happened in April feel like they happened five years ago. I like, forgot the Buffalo portion happened. Like at the end of the oh, year when yeah. there were like three ballparks, I was like, what? Oh yeah. Holy shit. They're in Buffalo for a little bit. Yeah. Like it, it would have been a lot better, honestly, if they were, I think playing in Dunedin was a problem. There was just, there was some kind of bad vibe. And I mean, Hey, look, like I've been to spring training games in Dunedin. It's a vibe. Like when you're there in March and you know, it's, 27 degrees in March and you're drinking a beer and you're like, you know, you're watching baseball. And you're like, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the renovated park is nice. Like their complex is sick, but I think there was something psychologically jarring. All right. Well, Coombsy's internet, uh, wherever he is, might not be cooperating here to let him rattle off the rest of this point here. Um, so we're just going to keep, we're going to keep uh, moving along here. Oh, he is like frozen, frozen too. He hasn't moved now in like 15 seconds. It looks good though. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good still. Uh, BK, you're, uh, you're next up here. Uh, George Springer and his ability to kind of come through in the clutch as often as he did. Yeah. Springer was uh, a lot of fun when healthy, right? Um, it, funny. We just talked about lack of Dunedin memories, but that one Atlanta game where he, I mean, he ended up re-injuring himself in that series. So ultimately it was a net yeah. loss. But he hit, comes back, and he hits what two home runs in that one mm-hmm. Braves game, including a 3-0 uh, just monster shot into the night sky uh, where you don't even see the ball uh, out in left field. But, yeah, I mean, he just had a lot of clutch hits for a season where he didn't net a lot of games because of injury. Um, you think I, – I, I, favorite one's probably got to be the Matt Barnes uh, oh. dinger on the Rogers Center, right? Like, what a moment. Know. Big comeback against the Red Sox. Big moment. Those two guys grew up together. Him and Matt Barnes are like downstreet neighbors. They grew up playing in the same little league team and all that stuff. And and uh, he just has a moment. And George Springer has a flair for the moment. Um, and and you know he came back from the knee injury, uh, one of many injuries this year. And he struggled. Like he that was rough there for a while. And Charlie kept running him out there. And eventually he found his groove. And and it's, it's one of many things on the list. Like we've talked about, you know, could have won a hundred games. If you play the whole year at Rogers center, could have won a hundred games. If you just had a healthy George Springer could have won a hundred games. If the bullpen not even was like better players, but if you just got like 50th percentile performance out of the bullpen or a little bit more luck, or, you know, there's all these, you know, if ands or buts, but Springer when healthy, was a monster. He actually finished with a higher WRC plus than Semyon this year. Springer had the second best WRC plus on the Blue Jays. Um, and, and it, it, you know, it somewhat quietly, right. He just, he, he ended up being uh, what we would have expected out of a year one superstar free agent. And it's just too bad. We, we didn't get to see more of it because he's a superstar when he's healthy. 
he left us with a great memory too, with the two home runs in the final game against Baltimore. So hopefully next year, uh, a healthy George Springer, I mean, 130, 135 plus games, I, I think would be a great scenario. I'm not even asking for, for that much there. Um, but like him in the lineup on a more consistent basis next season, like, I mean, getting those flashes of like, oh shit, that's why you pay players like George Springer. The amount you do was, was really great to see because like that home run against Boston was it's easily a top three moment of the season. Yep. Um, but that was unbelievable. Yep. Also, Absolutely. welcome back to the pod, Coombsy. Yeah, I'm now hot spotting on my phone. All right. This, uh, that phone bill is going to be ugly. But uh, if no, you're with no, Rogers, no. you are single handedly helping get that Robbie Ray extension done. So, <laughs> so good on you. Um, clutch hitting BK. That's also going to be your next down. Yeah. So as much as we talk about the bullpen, um, the offense did a great job of getting small leads and the offense, like, especially earlier in the year, the offense kept the leads at that small number. The Jays just did not do a good job of piling on insurance runs, unless it was one of those games where they're scoring 12 runs, right? They'd have those breakout games where everybody hits, but then they have these games where they put up six and starting pitcher maybe gives up four and the bullpen, you know, it comes in and they give up one and then another. And the Blue Jays were shut down a lot of the time in innings th- seven through nine. Um, so as, as much as it's, it, it, it seems obvious to blame the bullpen and there's a reason for that. There's a lot of games where they would score early and then just stopped. And that gave the opponent time to chip away time to maybe decide that they're going to use their leverage relievers because the game is still close. And the Jays just had trouble um, in a lot of their losses, just tacking on a run here or there in the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, or in, uh, eighth or ninth inning. Um, some really quick numbers here. They finished the year with a 112 WRC plus in baseball. That ranks second behind Houston. In low leverage, that number was 119, which was first. In medium leverage, that number was 106, which was ninth. And in high leverage, that number was 103, which was 10th. So, again, still a good hitting team. But they went from elite best in baseball in low leverage to being above average in high leverage. And those numbers were vastly improved in the month of September. If we had looked at this uh, early season through August, we're probably talking like 15th or 16th. So, as good as this offense is, the fact that they would be league average in any situation – doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And that was another thing that hurt the team. I'm just going to point this out because it pissed me off looking at these numbers. Seattle finished the year with a 93 team WRC plus 7% worse than league average. Their high leverage number was 135. (laughs) The Mariners 135. Not fair. That's how they ended up with this stupid record that just made no sense. And I think the next highest in high leverage was like 118 or something like that. So the Mariners were miles better than anybody else in baseball at hitting in clutch situations. And they just didn't hit outside of that. They did not hit the ball. But if it was a close game late, they're going to hit home runs and doubles and they're going to win the game by one. So it was an infuriating year. They had like the inverse season of the Blue Jays. I'm, I'm up next with uh, my next up here and I go back to the hot takes Coombsy and I did at the start of the year. And uh, mine was Alec Manoa or one of mine when Cam told me that Bobachette being top three in MVP voting wasn't spicy enough. Um, I said, Alec Manoa will factor into the rotation come August. Uh, he did it a hell of a lot earlier than August. 
that was it was from his first start like the first chance you got to lay eyes on him in a Jays jersey in a regular season game it was immediately like damn this guy's pretty special strike out the first batter you face at Yankee Stadium throw a gem at Yankee Stadium in your debut as well and there were hiccups along the way. There was the game he got hit pretty hard by Baltimore and then got thrown out and suspended for five games. There were rough moments in there. But all in all, that season from Alec Manoa, I mean, that's what we were expecting Nate Pearson to do this season. This, this was not at all what we were expecting Alec Manoa to become in his rookie year. But hell, the Jays found a front-of-the-rotation starter in their system this season, and that is unbelievable, unreal absolutely critical to what they're going to do moving forward and the ability to have success, right? Like you go back a year ago and Barrios and Manoa were not things that would have registered on your radar. And now you look at the, the prospect of not having either of those guys next year. And that'd be terrifying. Yeah. So, Oh yeah. I mean, Manoa, the fun thing about Manoa is he, he checks literally every box. Like, like he's got good stuff. It's, it's actually not elite stuff, but he's got good stuff. And he's just one of those like bulldog gamer loves the moment. Therefore it guys, he's got the vibes. Like dude has That's the key. elite yeah. That's baseball the key. vibes as a rookie. He's just like, I own this place, but also like you are all my best friends and I love everybody. And I'm just <laughs> going to learn what type of international food everybody on this team loves. And I'm a big beefy Boy, and I'm just going to eat it all. Like, he just, he's, he's got the lovable, huggable superstar factor. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's everything you could want out of a rookie. And I, I don't ever remember a pitcher just coming up. And like I said, checking like every box, boxes that matter and the boxes that don't, just the fun yeah. stuff from a fan standpoint that you can enjoy about a character. It's all perfect. And I love that you said that too, because I mean, like watching Robbie Ray this year was a ton of fun. Watching Ryu when he was on the level he was last season was a ton of fun. But there is something about when you're watching Alec Manoa find his groove and he's doing his little march around the mound after he's doing his run into the dugout that you're right. As a fan, it makes it 10 times more enjoyable to watch a guy who is seemingly because sometimes these these players just look like robots sometimes right they go out there strike out the side walk off sit in the dugout put their jacket on their shoulder but with Manoa it legitimately felt like he was getting as much enjoyment out of it as me a fan was which is great I don't think it's a stretch to say he is the only pitcher in baseball who would actually get up and go while pitching go put the home run jacket on the guys hitting yeah or standing up on the top step like just kicking it with his guys while pitching like that's what pitchers do on their off day and, and pitchers who are pitching go and sit, like you said, with the towel around the arm or the jacket on, and they're just in this, like, I need to be intense mode. And as a rookie, he just decided, nah, that's, that's not how I function. And I'm just going to be like fun vibes all the time. And I don't care what these veterans around me and every veteran I've ever seen or every pitcher I've ever seen in my life, I don't care what they do in between innings. I would just do me. So even that alone just shows the level of confidence he has. Like he's just comfortable. He's comfortable in the big leagues. He's comfortable with everything that encompasses this. And yeah, I mean, just what a, what a fun breakout season. Coombs, you got anything on Manoa or is he just the big man? The nice thing about him is that he's not. And look, we all know what I'm, we all know what I'm saying here. The nice thing about him doing the walk around high energy yapping a lot shtick is the fact that he's not five foot five. <laughs> are you also alluding to the fact he wears number six yeah it's significantly more endearing that it's not like a napoleonic complex 
Uh, I, yeah. Personally. Yeah. Yeah, you're it's, not it's a little bit cooler. It's it's more like, all right, this guy, if somebody, you know, ran up <laughs> to the mound, it would be very entertaining to watch how that situation would go down. <laughs> we, we're trying to just give love to our big man, and you're out here throwing shade at the former number six. I mean, no. come on. I'm uh, the little man. We're giving love the to the man. big man, not the little man. I, look, I'm a big fan of the um, ah, I'm a fan I'm a fan of the big man and the wee man. It's fine, but I just think the the new rendition of this is better than the old one. Personally, I, I won't I won't divulge. <laughs> I will uh, get into my down, um, and that is something that actually drove me personally straight up fucking bonkers this year. This made my blood boil, and it was when the organization was clearly. Maybe not lying about injuries, but was definitely being deceptive and not truthful. And listen, I get it. If right now, if they were heading into an ALDS series and there was something wrong with Robbie Ray or Vladdy or whatever, and the Jays just went day by day, we're not getting into it. You know, he'll be fine. He might not be fine. I don't know. That's fine, right? You're heading into a playoff series or the games mean a lot, whatever. When you're doing that shit in April and May and even June, all you're doing is irritating your fan base. When you're going into a three-game set against whoever, the Kansas City Royals in June, and you feel the need to lie about this player's injury or say it's not that bad, and then three days later he's on the 10-day IL, it just drove me nuts. And I get sometimes with injuries, shit changes. You know, injuries can become worse the next day, or you get a second opinion, you go for more tests. It gets worse than it is. But it just happened too many times this year with this organization. And I don't know what? if either of you have a different take on this, but it just, I like, I'm a guy who likes knowing stuff as well. I'm also a gambling man. So I also like knowing the info from that perspective as well, but it just drove me nuts. How many times this year we heard, Oh no, it's not that bad. He's day to day, actually 10 day IL. Oh, it's not that bad. It's just a mild little thing. Don't worry about it. And he didn't play for a month, right? Like it was just so annoying. I love, I love how you're equally as mad about this now as you were in like <laughs> April, May when it first happened. Because it just brings me back to that moment of sitting in this exact same spot. I mean, like, what the fuck is going on right now? It was, it was the one that was so dumb was when it was when 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 George Springer clearly ran to first base and was just like not okay. And then they pulled him out of the game and they're like, it was fatigue. Yeah, that Everyone's one. Like, why are you saying what the hell? that? Like, <laughs> we all saw it on the broadcast. Like, everyone knows that's not the case. Like, why did you just say he was sore? It was precautionary. It was just not. He re-injured his leg. Like, <laughs> and then for like months, we were so skeptical of like every single injury. It was like, oh, geez, like, you know, some reliever came in, only pitched to three guys. Like, does arm fall off? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> it was for like two but, months. We thought. But then even when Ryu, when Ryu was heard we were all like no he's fucking not you guys are full of shit because we don't believe <laughs> yeah. anything you say by the end of the year it was like oh he's gonna neck injury no he doesn't that's the funny, not real the funny thing is with charlie i'm not even sure he's all that of an intentional liar i think he's just the hyper optimist where he's got this like hope of what it minimally could be and he's not savvy enough with the media to understand how these things come across yet like it just doesn't compute all that much so yeah it was weird there was just kind of a weird pattern of things happening and it just felt like charlie talking optimistically for the purpose of talking when like tyler said it's better to just like if you lack certainty 
just say lack certainty and leave it there. Yeah. And he just had to be optimist Charlie, but it, within the context of injuries, it just doesn't make sense. And I don't feel like it's, it's super important for us to know. We like to know the, every detail. I don't think it's super important, but at the same everything. time, you know, I would like to, I, yeah, I would certainly like to, I but yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, just, just like leave it vague and then you cover yourself. And Charlie's just like, no, I'm going to tell you my most optimistic <laughs> hope. And then when that doesn't come to fruition, it, yeah, it's just, it, he needs to learn a little bit more media savviness. They need, they need the exact opposite. They need to manage to be a real Debbie Downer. And it's, and what happens <laughs> is if someone leaves the game with a bit of soreness and they're like, he's, he's never going to play again. He's, he's, he's he was in tears. He's probably going to die. And then he's on the field two days later and we're like, holy shit. And we're all so excited about it. That's what they need. That's better. Lourdes That's right. Gurriel gets stepped on and Charlie comes out and goes, the whole hand's gone. It's already we'll chopped off. We'll never walk again. <laughs> and then he's playing the next day and we're like, fuck yeah. Holy fuck. We're almost, this is easily our longest podcast of the year. Um, but let's Love get into our... Let's get into our last round of ups and downs presented by Twig and Berries. And Coombsy, you have the honor of telling us about how great it was to have the Blue Jays back in Toronto. Having the Blue Jays come back in late July there when I think we got to a point where it seemed kind of like they weren't going to be back for the whole year because everything was so chaotic. They couldn't get the clearance to come across the border. They couldn't get, you know, um, they couldn't get clearance from the municipal government to have X amount of people in the stadium and it didn't seem worthwhile and it seemed like it'd be a pain in the ass move everything from Buffalo, blah, blah, blah. They're just going to play the whole year in Buffalo. And they finally just randomly announced in mid July, like, Hey, we're back 15,000 fans. This is going to be insane. And you know, the first, the first game they played against Kansas city was just, Holy shit. Like wow. crazy atmosphere. Like there's only 15,000 people in there and it felt like it was full. And the whole pregame ceremony they did was super emotional I think, you know, Charlie tearing up in, in, you know, while that was happening, really, really endeared him to the fans. I know a lot of people still hate Charlie and they always will because they just hate the manager and that's just what they're like. But I mean, if you don't like the guy a little bit after seeing that, then you're soulless. And the whole experience was amazing. Just them. And I mean, we've all made this argument a million times. If they had been in Toronto the whole season, they would have won significantly more games. And it's a damn shame they didn't play more games in Toronto, but I'm very glad they did come back because every game that I went to, I think I went to like six games this year and they were just, every single one had an amazing atmosphere. And it was just so nice to be a part of that after March, April of 2020, thinking, Christ, I'm never going to watch a baseball game live again in my life. And then a year and a half later, here we are. And all the games this year were super fun. It was a great time. So I'm ecstatic that that happened. Yeah, they won both the games I was at as well, which was great. Two and zero with me and with me in attendance, and just being there is great. Like I understand that the dome is not like the best ballpark out there, obviously. Oh, it's there is paradise. There, there is something like there's just something about it when you're a Jays fan, like sitting there, CN Tower roof open. I mean, again, it's not the most aesthetically pleasing stadium or anything like that. It's basically just a concrete blob. But like there's something about being in there on a nice day with the sun out and it was unbelievable. So, yeah, even just watching them on TV and this is where you and I come in is watching them on TV back at the dome. You're way more emotionally invested in this baseball team. Like it just felt back to normal again, which was great. 100%. Uh, let's jump into uh, your down here, which is centered around Nate Pearson. 
My final down is, so we kind of touched on this earlier with the Manoa point. Manoa came out and he became the exact pitcher that we all thought slash hoped Nate Pearson would be this year because we thought, okay, this is going to be it. This is going to be his breakout year. And it was not. Nate Pearson got hurt in spring training. That pushed everything back. It seemed like they maybe rushed him back a bit. He made that start in Houston in early May. And that was rough watching that. He looked like he was in like psychological discomfort making that start. And it was it was unfortunate then you know he didn't he dealt with injuries at the minor league level only wound up pitching you know a handful of innings and you know you go back he's been a professional since 2017 he's only pitched over 100 innings once and we're getting to the point now the guy's you know 25 and is it really realistic to expect that he can throw anywhere near 200 innings like can we really pencil him in to be a starter next year or are they going to have to do some Tampa Bay Rays thing where he's pitching three, four innings as a bulk guy? Is he just a reliever? What is it? I mean, there was the positives at the end of the year that he was quite good as a reliever, but I personally, I mean, I don't really see the Nate Pearson top end starter thing happening. It just seems like the durability is not there. The There's something else going on too, where it seems like he's got the yips, and he's just he just can't pull it together for five six innings at a time. Nate, maybe Nate that's just maybe, maybe I'm being over, overly pessimistic. I don't know. His current situation does not mesh very well with a team that's trying to win right now, too, right? Because, yeah. like you said, it's it's confusing about how you bring him along next year because he can't pitch probably more than 140 innings. So. If you want him to be a starting pitcher, what, you start him in AAA and once again, he's doing short starts to preserve himself through the year? Well, you can't do that because if he gets hurt again, again, you're stunting his innings. So it, he's he's a confusing case on how a team that has these aspirations to go win a championship next year will use him because you want him helping you at the major league level, but then that is in a relief role. If you're entering the season with him in your major league rotation – well, then what? Are you giving him short starts? Are you doing fake IL stints throughout the year? Are you sending him down for pockets of time? Um, it, it's a bit of a tricky situation for the Jays to navigate, whereas if he was on the Pirates, I mean, it, just, it doesn't matter, right? Wins and losses don't matter. So you just build him up, and if he hits an innings count by mid-August, then you just shut him down, and it doesn't matter. But now the Jays need to use him and to get wins out of him uh, however that may be. And, and ultimately maybe that comes to be a trade, right? Maybe they trade him and they're bringing in somebody else to get wins out of Nate Pearson, but the team needs him to contribute, not to develop. And that is going to be really complicated and probably one of the most interesting things to follow in spring training next year. Yeah, that'll be a huge story. I mean, you talk about raise shit. We, we, we've hit on already in this, ep- in this episode of the pod, Ryu needing rest and Pearson not being able to handle a lot of innings. And they're two guys with completely contrasting pitching styles. I'd be very fascinated to see if there's a way to like almost combine them in the rotation. Like when it's Ryu early in the year, Pearson's piggybacked on them and they're each going to throw you 70 pitches. And it's an, it's almost like a modified opener thing. Like, yeah, it's not just one time through the rotation and it's whoever's starting like, just be like, yeah, all right. This time, in when it when we get to that fifth spot, Ryu's throwing a seventy, Pearson's throwing a seventy, and no matter what, they're done at seventy, and that's how we're going to preserve both these guys and get them their innings and or get Pearson his innings and keep testing him out at the major league level, but also give Ryu his rest. I don't know. 
I was like pie in the sky shit though. Probably. Um, <laughs> where are we at here? Uh, Coombsy, you're, Oh, you're done now. Hey, Coombsy, that's your final up and down. Um, I'm going to go first here. Cause mine are really quick. Um, my up, my final up is the home run jacket. And that is shit that 10 years ago would not have flown in this sport. I mean, you would have had every announcer in the league bitching about it. And instead, all we had was the Yankees announcers bitching about it when the Jays swept them. Um, This thing was awesome. We talk about vibes and what it means to like be a fan and how or how much more invested you can get when you like truly love a team. And the home run jacket was a big part of that. Like it's dumb. It's probably a little bit childish, but it's also cool as all hell and made you love this group even more when they're strutting through the dugout with this jacket on, giving their high fives and striking a pose at the end. It was just cool. And it was one of those things that you can love and appreciate when you maybe don't take sports too, too seriously. Right. Well, yeah. And like you said, on a childish level, um, I I have a four-year-old and a four-year-old does not have the attention span to watch baseball (laughs) or to learn baseball. But then the home run jacket became a thing and Bennett lived for it. Like if the game's on in the background, there'd be a home run. He'd hear the Rogers Center horn and he'd like gasp home run. Let me see the home run jacket. And like, that was a cool thing for us to like bond over. We'll have the game on in the car and he'd hear a home run. He'd be like, let's see the home run jacket when we get home. So like on a personal level, I really enjoyed yeah. that. Cause it was like a baseball connection with my little guy who's, you know, not super into baseball. Right. And then it just, it, it's what pulled him into the sport. So I'm looking at it now. I'm like, Oh man, like my kid only knows home runs to mean a jacket. So the Jays can't give this thing up because next year baseball will not make sense. But yeah, it was, it was really cool. I re- I really enjoyed it obviously. And uh, yeah, I, I hope it somehow returns, but it kind of feels like one of those one year, special to a certain group of players kind of thing. And then you come up with something new. I I think it'll come back. I think their core is going to be similar enough next year. And I also think like it could be a thing, you know, like if they bring in a free agent, I bet you that free agent, it's like a fun little, like, Hey, are you excited to put on the home run jacket for the first time? There's signs here. And they're just like, look, I want to hit a home run so I can wear that fucking jacket. (laughs) The money was the same between the Jays and Milwaukee. But the thing that put me over the top was the chance to wear that jacket. You imagine they like acquire Jose Ramirez and all the talk is like, Oh, the home run jacket. Then he goes like a month and a half without hitting one to start his Jays career. So much pressure. So much pressure. That thing on. Um, and, my, my final down here, we debated a couple in the group chat. One was the Brad Hand acquisition that we wrote down, but I'm actually going to go back to the Charlie Montoyo shit that we had to deal with this year. No matter who is the manager, no matter what they do, they're going to get carved for stuff. And there was a lot of times this season where Charlie was just getting ripped for things that were so dumb. Like in the Rays series, when it's like, why isn't he going out and fighting this? Why isn't Charlie getting tossed more? Like, people have convinced themselves that the 2015 Jays were good because Gibby would get tossed. Like it just didn't make any sense. The Charlie hate. I w- <coughs> oh my God. Excuse me. While I- oh, never mind. Um, I was chatting with someone earlier this week. Who's they're a baseball player. They play minor league ball. And they were like, listen, the role of the manager nowadays in any level coming up, is barely even to manage games anymore. That shit's all done beforehand. It's done on spreadsheets. It's done in meetings. It's done before the year when you talk about what your strategy is going to be. The role of a manager is to deal with the players and more or less manage egos here and make sure everyone's like playing nice and getting along. And I just think when people are constantly ripping Charlie for shit that it's like, you know, if you can't tell that in the eighth inning of a high leverage situation, this guy's coming in, that's been decided before the game. Like, that's just kind of how it works now. And I just felt like the Charlie discourse we dealt with this year was like, 
extra annoying because the team was good. It's so lazy. It's just, it is. It's, it's just, it's just thoughtless analysis. It's just people shouting for the sake of shouting. It's, oh, geez. Like, the reason they didn't do it all this year is because back in May, they used Joel Payams in the seventh inning when I specifically thought they should have used Anthony Castro. And it's like, what the fuck are we talking about here? Like, both those guys suck. Every reliever sucked. Like, no shit they were losing games. Like, what do you want them to do? Like, Or when it's like a Sunday and it's like, why is this guy playing left field instead of this guy? And it's like, okay, well, that doesn't mean Charlie sucks. There could be a handful of reasons why this decision is being made. But like, you're right. It's just shouting for the sake of shouting. It was super annoying. The funny thing with the discourse is there are legitimate reasons to criticize any manager, right? And there, there's one, there's always missing context that we don't know. But two, managers will make poor decisions at times. Right. And like you said, Tyler, we don't always know how much was decided beforehand and how much is gut feel. And Ross Atkins has talked about probably Charlie having more autonomy than some people in the public give, you know, assume is the case there, but there are things to criticize him for at the same time, the things people choose to get mad at him for again, just because I'm watching baseball and I want to have a temper tantrum in front of the umpire does not mean that's definitively (laughs) the correct thing to do. That just means aesthetically, that's what I would like to see. But really what does my aesthetic goals of baseball really matter to the 2021 blue Jays? What matters is how the, how the players see him in the clubhouse. And if they're fine with him, not having a meltdown or a tantrum because it's not his personality, then why does it matter, right? So the the tantrum-seeking stuff, I just don't get. And some of the stuff, like you mentioned, with the Tampa Bay series and the card stuff, sometimes it might even be strategic. Like, hey, I'm not looking to escalate this. I'm not looking to have benches clear. I'm not looking to have some sort of beanball war. I'm not looking to get my players injured. We've seen players get injured because of this type of stuff. Escalated. Joaquin Benoit, 2016. Exactly. So if, if Charlie's tactic is just, I'm the de-escalation guy, then fine. Like that's his personality. And there's multiple ways to correctly manage egos, personality, and a clubhouse. We need to be fine with that. So yeah, like there, there's definitely times where I'm like, oh, like I'd, I'd be ripping into an umpire right now. That probably says more about Charlie Monto- Montoyo than it does about me. Like that's okay. I've got this thing where I, I i've seen it and throughout baseball history so i just believe a tantrum is is necessary mm-hmm. here but it like no it, it doesn't have to be and he's talked about being a hothead in the past so here is this like guy who's been able to correct his work on himself and get to a place where he can you know like breathe and not freak out and not have that be his default and that's kind of nice good for charlie <laughs> good for him to be on a personal level good for him to be there and on a professional level again as long as the team is fine with it and the team isn't tuning him out if the players love him that's what matters i listened to ross on a radio interview uh yesterday driving home from dodger stadium and he said um probably 90 percent of a manager's job is what we don't see right so yes there are things to complain about within that 10 percent we see some right some wrong but that's part of being a baseball fan and i do think he does make some mistakes tactically but that 90 percent matters a whole lot and we don't know everything going on and we need to act like that carries more weight than the general fan gives it um when you say tactically there are things to complain about you mean bunting correct yeah. And then, and then bunting with two strikes, which is its own <laughs> special category, right? There's bunting, yeah. which like kill it, drop kick it, it should die. And then there's bunting with two out strikes where 
Charlie probably should be executed for that. (laughs) Like you can't do that. And there's no way that's coming from the front office. Right. So this is one of those areas where I'm like, all right, so he's clearly getting autonomy to make this decision. and It's really bad. And it bugs me. It gets to me, man. But Uh, again, again, like there's a difference between disagreeing with the manager, not liking this, thinking this is a problem and the leap to, they should not be the manager anymore. (laughs) And I think we're just too quick to get there. I've got there before. There's times where I'm like, I don't care if Charlie's back. And maybe he's attached to Pete Walker. Hey, so all these people are like, oh, get rid of Charlie. Maybe that maybe that sends Pete Walker out of town. So there's a lot of stuff we just don't know and can't know. And uh, yeah, this was a good topic to, to talk about because it was a little over the top this year. It was probably more entertaining than me just talking about the Brad hand trade, right? Um, yeah, we all knew that was bad. Yeah, we're going to flip it for our last one because I want to end on a positive and there's a way to go with the final up, even though it's been over an hour already and it's okay. getting pretty late. Um, but the playoff format, BK, that's your final down. This is going to be a tangent. I'm excited yeah. for this. So I'm going to really go grab another beer as he starts. I don't know what the right answer for is for the number of teams that should make the playoffs, uh, the number of wild cards there should be, how many games that first round should be if playoffs are expanded, all that stuff. I don't, I don't have a ready-to-go answer. But the playoff format as it exists awards people or teams that win divisions, right? But right mm-hmm. now, we've got this division imbalance in baseball, which is going to continue to be there for years. So if you've got regions in the Midwest that are small or medium market teams, they're never going to spend at elite levels. So unless they're functioning as the Rays, they're going to have ups and downs, probably mostly downs. And that opens windows for, you know, above average teams to win divisions, win win multiple division titles. Then you've got a division like the AL East where there's four teams that win 91 plus games this year. The Baltimore Orioles, which are in a total rebuild and are awful, but like they've got talent coming up too. And we're eventually going to look at a team where we or a division where we potentially have, you know, five competent or better teams, but there could be a sustained run here where we've got four like high end teams and the current format always one of them will miss the playoffs. But on top of that, the division schedule sucks. The Blue Jays get to play Detroit and Cleveland seven times a year, and they play the Yankees and Rays and Red Sox 19 times per season. If you're going to have an imbalanced schedule like that, well, first of all, no, that schedule should not exist in that form because it hurts teams just for being in a region where teams can spend more money on payroll. It just doesn't make sense. So the schedule needs to not be balanced in that way. And teams need to, yeah, it's never going to happen, but baseball really should be trying to get the, if there's 10 playoff teams, it should be an effort to get the 10 best teams in baseball into the playoffs. And the current format doesn't set that up, right? So this sounds whiny on our part just because the Jays missed by one game. But at the same, on the same side of things, it should matter that a 91-win team can't even see one more day beyond the season. And then you've got the White Sox winning 93 but in the AL Central, and you've got the Cardinals Braves. making the playoffs of the 87, the Braves, or however many Cardinals. The Dodgers having to play in a fucking play yeah. game after like, winning 106 games. Cool. Yeah, games. winning the division is important. That's what it currently sets up. But why does that matter? Because that's just region, okay? So, like, Detroit is blessed to be in kind of the, this area of the country where they got thrown into this division alignment that just 
means that, you know, once they're good again, and it looks like that'll be soon that they just don't have extreme competition in their division. Cool. Like well, the White Sox right now, right? Like, yeah, they're just a, a default playoff team for three years. And look, the White Sox have a nice roster, but then you look at they finished the year. Like they, they won two more games than the Jays. Well, if you're winning two more games than the Jays in that division, you're not yeah, better than the Jays. Right. No. And if you're the, the second half of the year, I think they were like under 500. Like I just, this stuff bugs me because I'm a fan of a team who's just in this terrible division format that will hurt them. I think the the solution ultimately comes down to MLB needs to be a 32 team league so they can have four divisions of eight and you can spread it out a bit more. That's what I think makes a bit more sense because you're trapped in these little dinky five team divisions and And two divisions specifically are so loaded. Like the NL West and the AL East are so much better than the other divisions. What's what's your dream solution, BK? Ooh, my dream solution would be uh, throwing out division winners being a guaranteed playoff spot. And like, let's just say division stayed the same, that the schedule would be more balanced. Doesn't need to be completely balanced. Just for travel reasons, it probably makes sense to have stuff a little bit more regionalized. But if you played like nine games against, or like to, let's say ten games against other teams uh, out of division in the AL and that dropped your in-division number of games to like 14, 15. That's just a closer way to have the AL play out in a way where the best teams are making the playoffs, right? And right now when that split is 19 versus seven, it's just way too drastic and it sets up really good teams to not make the playoffs. And that's a problem. It's, It's a problem. So yeah, I don't, I don't even know what the perfect number of playoff teams is. And six is a little messy because like, are you giving teams by and then does that mean they're off for like six days before the playoff starts and it, it, within baseball which is so routine oriented are you hurting teams now by giving them a buy so look i know there's a lot of difficulty and questions to ask about what that would look like but the schedule just needs to be balanced like that's the easiest solution to get the 10 best teams in the playoffs uh if it's going to be a 10 team playoff format I'd love to see the div- divisions just wiped and you go alno like i get the travel might not be as great once you balance out the schedule, but also when you get a three game set in a series, you're landing, setting up shop for three games, right? When you talk about the NBA or the NHL as well, like you're going or you're going to a city for one game and getting the fuck out of there. Most of the times that night. Right. So it's hard for me to be like, Oh yeah. Baseball complain about travel when like you're stationed up for three days. Like it's not actually that bad compared to other sports. I would wipe it out. I'd go AL, 15 or maybe one day, 16 teams, NL 15, 16, fully balanced schedule and just play it out. And I'd do six teams as well. I'd do two, get a buy and I'd do the wild card round is a best of three. And if you wanted to save travel at that point, best of three, where the home team gets all three games as well. Sure. I have some sort of revenue split in there to really give some incentive to the road team, but just balance it out, man, do a best of three. It wouldn't be that insane to be like, Oh, sorry to the, you know, top two teams, you got to wait four days for your series to start. They might, maybe they would like that. It wouldn't throw you off too much. I don't know. Yeah. I'd just like to see something different where yep. a season like this doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, even it will continue to happen. Right. So yeah, I, I like your, I like your solution. That would, that would work well. Uh, your final up, and this is a good one to end on front office and ownership. Hell yeah. So I, we got to finally be past that 
weird place where shatkins yeah it never it, will be like it's done right it's dead it has right? to be. There, it never there, will be <laughs> there's like three you know, people bad boy's gonna keep it yeah alive. that's the thing there, there's gonna be like three <laughs> people who like bad boy and cathal kelly like they could just exist <laughs> in their bubble of enjoying each other in misery but yeah i mean it, look it's a legitimately good front office where you want to stack it up across mlb like doesn't matter if you're a blue jays fan you look at it and be like cool we have a good front office and beyond just making smart decisions, again, we've, we've talked about it, we've joked about it, but Marcus Semien and how he talked about Toronto is real. Like, here's one of the most respected players in baseball talking glowingly in a piece that didn't come across as pandering. Like, he just loved to talk about the good things the Jays had going. And I can tell you, like, I, from just hearing some things that – it is very real when Mark and Ross talk about having this be like one of a player's favorite places to play based on all the resources they provide behind the scenes. So the team is like dedicated to making families as comfortable as possible and to making all these situations play out as well as it can. They spent all that money or they spent all of ta Florida taxpayer money on the Dunedin <laughs> facility to make this state of the art, like not just baseball, but one of the best training facilities in all of professional sports in North America in a dinky town in Florida, but on the coast for players to try and incentivize them to spend 12 months a year playing down there, getting better in the pitching lab, hitting tools, all this stuff. And the Rogers Center, the guts of the Rogers Center, as far as the locker room and the batting cages and all that stuff, like the vision here has been to build a behind the scenes infrastructure, one that gets players better and two that motivates players and it, it makes them feel a certain way of where they play. And beyond just smart player moves, that is critical for an organization and fans probably don't give that enough credit. Um, and that's what Mark is good at. Right. So I, I think we've seen that. I think we have enough evidence at yeah. uh, to see that that is a major strength for the Jays front office. So again, that's one reason to be really happy with them Two smart moves and big, big money moves, right? Like Ryu Springer, Semyon, those are all top of market in different ways, types of deals that they're comfortable giving out. So this small market Cleveland thing that was probably unfairly attached to them. Um, and, you know, me and Coombs, you go way back talking about this. I, I've been a believer in the plan since the beginning because I, I bought in and I knew, I knew the money spending would come. Like there was no reason to doubt it other than just like kind of being whiny about the chase, which look in like 2017, 2018, there were reasons to whine. So I get it. But the plan was pretty clear. And man, they turned this thing around fast. Like it didn't feel fast because years of time is a long time. But if you look at all the other teams who were in similar spots to the Jays in 2017 and look where those teams are now, the Jays are so far ahead of them. And they're making these types of moves like, you know, like getting, uh, I, I think I just read a, a shy piece where he said they got 13.1 war out of, um, $31 million spent on Matt's Ray and Semyon, like just insane wow. return on those moves last season. So they're pairing spending with performance and then all this stuff that's going on behind the scenes and the stability that comes with having the same front office for going on. This will be the sixth season. Now mm -hmm. all these things have worked together to create a really stable baseball situation for the Jays. And that shouldn't be understated and ownership. I don't like to, 
cape for ownership. Like, you know, the Rogers has money and anything they spend on the Jays will be insignificant to anything they ever do. <laughs> but it's nice just grading on the curve of MLB owners. It's nice to have playing last year in Buffalo and then this year playing in Buffalo, Dunedin and the uncertainty in the off season about how far they would actually go until they had to pl- get, got to play in Toronto and to still shell out a hundred million on the biggest contract in franchise history. Like that's really encouraging. Right. So that's that, that, again, that means the front office has gotten ownership to believe in the plan where they're spending major money when they looked at potentially two years with like zero generated revenue which is insane, right? Like in-person revenue. So again, grading on the curve of MLB owners, there's a lot of ownership groups that would have said, hey, we're slashing payroll. Like Cincinnati Reds, they just gave away their closer to the Angels in the offseason, right? They gave away Iglesias because they didn't want to pay him 9 million bucks because their owner said, oh yeah, we're having a hard time from the pandemic. Well, you know who had a hard time from the pandemic? The Blue Jays, right? Like they had as difficult a time from that as anybody. So man, like I, I, I'm super enthused about the group they have and what that looks like moving forward. And the Jays are in a really healthy spot. I, I love that optimism and I am totally down to end it on a high note like that. Um, the other thing I'll add too, just from a fan perspective, it keeps you so much more engaged going into the off season when you know, bad shit won't happen. Right. When you know yep. you're not giving up a guy because of payroll, when you're sitting there going, Hey, they're going to you know do their best to get rid of Gritcha Cause he's dead money, but it's all baseball related. You're not sitting here being like, fuck, what is like, there's no way they signed Ray and semi and they're going to cost too much. We're sitting here like convincing ourselves, Hey, maybe it happens. So as a fan, it keeps you so much more engaged the year round, which is also great from a business perspective as well. When you're, when you're a, when you're a main story in the country throughout the off season, because in back to back years, you've done huge things like Ryu and Springer. That's massive. So you're right. Ownership management, not to sound like a bunch of fanboy shills for them, but like they, they deserve a lot of credit for this. And they've totally flipped the narrative. Cause I was one of those people at first who I didn't buy in like you, I see these two guys come in from Cleveland and they're tearing down the team I loved in 2015. And I'm going like, this is bullshit. We're just going to end up being a small market group and they're going to cut money. They're going to build up with the kids and we're going to have to wait six years to get competitive ball again. And that really isn't what happened here. Coomzy. No, you can't complain at all. Like, I mean, the, the whole thing about, you know, not spending cash was disproven in those two lost off seasons. And they've been very explicit about everything the whole way it was. We're not going to spend fuck all in 2018, 19. And then once we start to get good, we will. And, you know, they've been completely genuine. I've, I've, yeah. I've got no concerns. I mean, wait, let's be real here. Is there any concern that they're not going to sign Bowen Vlad long-term because they're too cheap? No. You no, would consider that? No. What goes through my head is not, oh man, is there going to be a day where Bowen Vlad leave? What goes through my head is me envisioning the press conference where they announce matching 10-year deals for the two of them. Like, that's what I think about. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've, I, I don't have the same optimism on those because those are dudes who come from money and I think they're going to love free agency no matter what. But yeah, I, I, I think the, the big picture thing is just they now have the benefit of the doubt, which they didn't have before. Yeah. And that is something that has to be earned. And now we go into an offseason and be like, man, we could lose maybe you know one of or both Ray and Semyon, but you know they're going to spend elsewhere, like you said. And man, like an engaged off season is so fun. I actually enjoyed yeah. as much as the regular season. Like the, the I'm such a nerd for this shit, man. It's so oh, yeah. fun. This is great. And then, and then so like good. last off season and, and then seeing it all play out in the misery until, you know, Springer and then Semyon came soon after that. 
Um, which by the way, I pulled a tweet of mine from January 15th, uh, where I said my off season wish list was Springer, Semyon, Yates and Tanaka. So I got three <laughs> of four. I just, I just stumbled into that today. So I got three of four from nice. that list. Although Yates and so what's the, okay, wait, then what's the off season wish list for you this year? I'm not there yet. Okay. I'm not well, there yet. So I, that's another I, pod. I Yes, we will have a, we, oh, yeah, we'll we should have an off season moves podcast once the world series concludes. And once we kind of have a feel of what free agency looks like. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, CBA I, first, eh? Yeah. That's the thing. It's a complicated, all that means is it'll Fuck. be a slow off season, right? So nothing's going to happen until after the new year. Yeah. It might delay stuff. And then it might be a little bit more of a chaotic free agency than baseball is used to having. Cause there might be a lot that happens quick, which could be fun, but we're going to be waiting for a while for yeah. that. I would think, but it's going to be a flurry and, yeah, late February. But lots of possibilities, and I think the Blue Jays have a really strong reputation across baseball right now. So as long as the, there's strong optimism that the team is going to be in Toronto, which I don't know why they're with at this point. Um, but yeah, the, I think the the arrow is pointing way up on the Jays and how they're perceived around the sport. While we wait for the Jays to make their offseason moves, you, the listener, can make your own offseason moves by heading to sportscloset.ca. I'm getting fist pumps. I love it. Uh, good. Load up. Come on. Just because it's the off season doesn't mean you can't grab a new jersey or a new hat. And the other thing I'll say, sportscloset.ca, they ship to you. Just remember that name come Christmas time when you're shopping for the sports fan in your life. Sportscloset.ca. Um, all right. Let's wrap this up because it's almost an hour and a half. This has been like three episodes of BJN Radio jammed into one, and I love it. Um, but this was great. Enjoy the, enjoy the great weather, BK. Coomsey, you enjoy the cold mountains, and I'll enjoy the cold one I'm currently drinking. Have a good one, guys. Love Thanks. this. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to Blue Jays Nation Radio, a member of the Nation Network of podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.